You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. Now, as we've been hearing this morning of the remarkable rescue yesterday of cousins Ellen Glynn and Sarah Feeney, the two young women swept out to sea while paddleboarding in Galway Bay on Wednesday evening. With a huge search underway, father and son Patrick and Morgan Oliver spotted 17-year-old Ellen and Sarah, who's 23, clinging to a lobster pot boy south of Inishir Island just before lunchtime yesterday. They had spent 15 hours on the water. We can talk now to Ellen's dad and the uncle of Sarah, Johnny Glynn. Very good morning to you, Johnny, and thanks for talking to us this morning. Um, good morning, Brian. You must have been mightily relieved when when the word came through that they had been found and found safe and well. Yeah, yeah. when I got that phone call, it was obviously a mighty relief, as you said, but there was a lot more than that. Um, I'm still really trying to... It's all happened so fast now, you know, and I don't... It's Friday morning, but I can't really... Uh, this Wednesday night, Wednesday evening to now, um, so much has happened, so 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 much turmoil, and um, yeah, we are very relieved. Ellen is still in the hospital; they've kept her in overnight. Her bloods were a little bit low, you know, she was in good form. Um, so they've kept her in, and she stayed overnight with her. And um, Sarah, how's she doing? Sarah's great. Uh, Sarah was in the hospital uh, with her yesterday evening as well in Galway. And Sarah went home last night. I didn't see her when she got home, even though she was very close to us. And um, Ellen and Sarah were very close. Uh, so Ellen is her eldest daughter. And when she was born, um, Sarah was the only other uh, grandchild, if you like. Um, and so and Sarah was six years old, her, and herself and Sarah were pals when they were very young. And, and they've remained their, their friendship. And they're, they're, they're both. They both like the water sports. They both like going swimming and paddleboarding. And um, in the last, well, probably in the lockdown and over the last uh, few weeks, when when the weather was good, and sometimes when it wasn't so good, they just they go down to Silver Strand and quite regularly, which is only down the road from us. Yeah. Um, and Russian Bay, obviously, as well. Russian Bay, just to say that, so they like going down there and doing all the water sports. When, when they didn't come back on, on Wednesday night, and then when this really huge search operation, I mean, I, so many people were involved in um, scouring the coastline, there were boats on the water, the rescue helicopter was on the air, that just must have been a, a terrible night for you. It's, it's very difficult to imagine the, your, your worry and your anxiety through those hours. Yeah, so um, uh, when I arrived, I arrived home from training, I'm very involved with Colby United, and I arrived home from training, and... Uh, uh, I arrived in and Ellen was going out the door and her, her aunt Helen and that Sarah's mum was at, outside with collecting her and they were going in the car. Didn't really have a chance to say anything to her. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, a, it was a, it's a regular event that they'd be going. They normally go in the evening, usually seven or eight uh, o'clock. They'd go. Uh, they'd go down to Silver Strand for an hour, um, but Silver Strand was closed uh, because of COVID. So. The next stop after that was uh, Furbo Beach, um, which they don't, they haven't been there before paddleboarding. Um, so they, they were gone. I was here watching football. I was watching the Champions League, and um, my wife. Uh, I was upstairs watching the football, and I heard my wife going out, leaving the house, but she didn't say where she was going. And then um, I had a couple of missed calls from her then, and I rang her back, and she said, "Look, you better come out here because." The girls uh, have been drifted, uh, you know, the, the, the paddleboards have drifted mm-hmm. out, and so I didn't really know 
how bad I just jumped in the in my own car and went out to, to Herbal Beach. And at that stage, um, you know, with, with, there were just what can you do? Uh, Deirdre's, Deirdre's mum and dad were there. Um, um, sorry, Sarah's mum and dad were there, and my wife Deirdre were there. And but we were helpless. You know, we we know they had phones for the the lifeguard, and uh, they said there was, a, there was a boat on the way. Yeah. So a boat did come eventually, and uh, it wasn't too long after that. Um, I phoned a guy uh, I know called Donny Garrahy. He's involved in at Doolin, mm. at Doolin Ferries, and he's. I just I didn't have any really contact on my phone to ring to get information, yeah. and I rang Donny to, to explain what was happening here. It was you know happening. Yeah. Uh, it was, and I just wanted to take some sort of action. And Donny was able to see uh, that there was boats on the way on his satellite. He was able to see. But there was boats on the way, and that he was able to tell me then that, um, uh, and obviously the guards were, were involved as well at this stage. And a very good friend of mine, Pat Ryan, um, was a guard here in Galway, so he was helping mm. out. And but after so many, I mean, through through the night into the following morning, yeah. hour after hour, still no word coming through. I, I mean, if anything, your your worry you know must have been just increasing at an enormous rate at that stage. Really wondering yeah. how this was going to end. We didn't know, I mean, we're still just sitting there, standing there, sitting on the beach in Furbo and thinking, oh, like, you can't do anything. And I was just in my, in my head, I think, oh, what can we do? And where are they, where are they going to, you know, if, well, we, we saw the helicopter, the helicopter came and, and it was sweeping the bay and we could see them hovering over areas and they hovered over one area for a long time and we were sure they must be picking somebody up mm-hmm. or both of them, hopefully. And... We push, and then, but then the helicopter pulled away. We still didn't know whether it picked someone up or not. But obviously, it didn't because we didn't get any call. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know, Ellen so your hopes raised, that, raised, and then dashed again. Yeah, and, yeah. There was. We really were. We really were raised there. And then after that, it goes dark again because there's no lights on the bay, and you're thinking, no, that's it. They're, they're on. They're on the water for the night, and where, uh, and how are they going to survive that? We we didn't know. We didn't. We just didn't know, um, and myself and my wife decided to, well, it was two o'clock then, we decided to come home, change our clothes, and head to County Clare, uh, and, and sweep uh, the coastline, and uh, I start, we started at Ballyvaughan, and we were going to work our way up the coastline, but there's, there's so much, there's so much coast uh, to, to try and cover, mm. you know, we weren't able to, obviously... And I wanted, at that stage as well, I was very conscious of getting as many people out as possible. And I was going through my phone and people I knew in, in Clare, people I knew in Kinvara, people mm-hmm. in Owen Moore, uh, and all the other sides, the Galway side as well. I was trying to get people uh, moving. And of course, Deirdre's uh, sisters, they, they were very much uh, on the same lines, trying to get people active. Um, and, yeah, I su- so and I suppose trying to put out of your mind that thought, you know, or the question, w- will you see them again? Absolutely, and that was, of course, dawning me. It probably didn't really hit me until I came back to the house here on on Friday morning, and we had to uh, we had to tell Ellen's uh, three younger sisters the news. They they had gone to bed, um, not knowing mm-hmm. what had happened to the three of them, and that's and they're like they're young, they're nine to fourteen. So we had to sit them down mm-hmm. um, and explain what had happened, and that was obviously very very tough. And they were, you know, they were in shock really initially, and then they just 
they all just started crying and hmm. uh, we then you know we decided well we have what are we going to do and we said well we have to go out and look ourselves and at this stage there's so much going on in Galway that the people so many people had uh, put groups together and were um, you know searching all the, the, the coast of Clare and Galway because we knew yesterday we only had really on, from first light which is 5 a.m. Mm-hmm. until probably 9 p.m. last night. And was our, that was our only opportunity, really, that after that, you know, um, you know, it's the worst-case scenario after that. Yeah. You had really just that day to, to, to resolve this. And, and, and yeah. have, you, you, can, you know, in talking to Alan and to Sarah, um, I mean, the, the thing, and we were talking to John Leach from Irish Water Safety a little earlier, he's saying the fact that they stuck together was so important um, and, uh, you know, yeah. really a kind of a life-saving thing for them to do. Yeah, so, well, you know, when I was in for one, I said, oh, God, I just hope they're together. You know, how they stay together, I don't know, but it's really, really important that they stay together. Mm-hmm. So Adam was able to tell me in the hospital last night that they tied the, the paddle boards together. Now, I don't know how you do that or what they did with but they tied the paddle boards together. So that was that was obviously really, really the most <laughs> the best thing to do yeah. and to, to, to ever do that successfully. So that was uh, must have been fantastic for them. Like imagine being on your own, uh, the difference that would make to, to be on your own as to having a companion with you all night and going to go through that. Yeah, and then they managed to, to secure themselves to the boy. And then the... So, the, yeah, the so she said to me, yeah, she was explaining... We were we just we were looking for a boy in the water, and she said we we couldn't see a boy anywhere. She said no matter you know, and they were moving all the time. There's no boys, and then she said I don't know where these two boys came out of. He says it just they appear, seem to appear from no from nowhere. They're they're lobster pot boys, so they grabbed onto them anyway. So that was that really at that stage. You see, they they had ended up at the cliffs and more this morning or yesterday morning sometime. Mm-hmm. And she said to me, they were they could see the cliffs and more, and they could see the Iron Islands in in the far distance. And in between, then, as you see, is the is the Atlantic Ocean, the opening out between yeah. uh, Clare and and the Iron Islands into the Atlantic Ocean. And she knew, and Sarah knew, they couldn't. That's you know, if they were pulled out there. There's that was the worst. That's the worst case scenario. Yeah. So their aim was to get across to the islands. Now she said. It was really tough because the waves were very high, and uh, you know, I suppose there were how many hours were there from first light, which was uh, half five, five o'clock yesterday yeah. morning until uh, until lunchtime when they were found. Yeah, so all those hours they were battling against the the sea to try and get to the to the islands, and then so and they, they could see boats in the distance, they could see helicopters in the distance, but I think they were so far north. I was in north or south, I can't think now, but they were so far, I think it is north, uh, north, northwest, maybe, mm-hmm. that the boat, the, maybe the helicopters couldn't, of yeah. they were that far, uh, they were, the helicopters were working much further in, but they could see the helicopters in the distance, they could see boats in the distance, but they couldn't figure out why the boats weren't coming over to them, and then um, the boat appeared, Sarah said to Ellen, this boat's coming for us, and it was uh, the Olivers, and uh, that was that was obviously the. Uh, uh, I doubt if they would have made. You know, I don't know how far they were from the islands at that stage, but the Olivers obviously got there and rescued them, and were forever grateful to them. 
Indeed, as I'm sure you and all your your family are. Well, uh, listen, Johnny, it's a it's a, a wonderful outcome to I mean, what obviously could have been a, a very different uh, end. Um, and uh, perhaps you'll give our very best to to, to Ellen and to Sarah, and uh, um, and uh, our very best as well to you and, you and your family. And thanks indeed for talking to us this morning. Appreciate yeah, thank your time. Thank you very much. I just really want to thank, thank everybody. There's so many people. I forgot Tom. The the the, the the life, the, the, the lifeboat. The lifeboat. The lifeboat or the uh, the um, yeah, the guy in the Clare side of it. Like, yeah, he was brilliant as well on, on the phone. Yeah, the Coast Guard as well, and everybody Coast was involved. Guard, sorry, yeah. Tom, yeah. The Coast Guard and Clare and uh, and Mike Swan and in the RNLA, I think it's called over the yeah. life, the lifeboats and. Uh, look, okay. I just need to make a list of people now and start right. bringing them okay. well, we we'll leave, we'll leave you to do that. Yeah. Oh, th- sure, but thanks Thank for you. talking to us this morning. That was Johnny Thank Glynn you. talking to us about the uh, the rescue of his daughter and uh, and niece, Ellen and uh, Sarah, uh, after such an extraordinary uh, ordeal. As we know, today is the day that the pubs were hoping to reopen under the government's plan to restart the latest phase of the economy. But as we also know, it's not going to happen. The acting chief medical officer, Dr. Ronan Glynn, said that international evidence that pubs have led to outbreaks of COVID-19 underpinned his advice to government to keep them closed. Prior to that decision to delay, the Vintners Federation warned it was a make-or-break week for the pub industry. So what does it all mean for rural pubs in particular? Our reporter, Ingus Cox, has been finding out. Ingus, how are you? You're welcome. Nice to meet you. How are you? Come in. Come in. Pat Gilmore owns Martin's Barnathishi in the rural Galway town of Ballygar. The business has been in the family since the 1830s and Pat has been running it since 1986. Covid restrictions led to the pub closing in March but back then Pat didn't think it would be for that long. At first... It was a little bit of a holiday and, as we thought, reopening around the first week in June. A few of my uh, customers, we had a bit of a wager who, who would foretell when the pubs would be open. Naturally, I thought it would be open by the 1st of June, June weekend, so I've lost my wager. The running of the pub is very much a family operation. My name is Maeve Gilmore and I'm Pat Gilmore's daughter. So I'm a university student in UL and at the weekends I'd help mum and dad out at the pub. I've been collecting glasses for as long as I can remember. My room is directly above the pub so there's been some late Saturday nights that I mightn't have been able to sleep. Since the pub closed it's been very weird. Do you know I'm 20 years of age and like the pub has been open for as long as I can remember. How many tables can we take here? You have During the closure, Pat and the family have been busy getting ready to trade in a post-Covid environment. We've repainted the whole area, we've redone the toilets, put in uh, sanitising units, taken out some furniture. Uh, We are waiting to see about doing perspect but not perspect. Now the reality has set in, the pub is unlikely to open any time soon. If they say we have to stay closed in, so be it. But we need compensation. You cannot live in fresh air. And is the argument, like for places like Ballygar, they're very, very important to the community? Look, at it, most of our customers here are elderly, they're of the farming community, or they would have been working at five o'clock, if you, you'll have a few come in after work, they'll have a few drinks, and they'll go home. That's the rural scene for you. A few farmers might come in at night, they might want to know what happened at the local, the local mart. They might want to know, is there anyone dead? 
They might want to tell an odd lie just to create a bit of atmosphere. And Pat is adamant rural pubs need more support if they're to survive this extended closure. They're giving us 2% reduction in VAT. Every business gets 2% reduction. They're giving us rates uh, relief until September. Every business in the, in, the, in the country gets rates relief. They're giving us restart grant. And any business that has been closed is getting a restart grant. So what are you saying? Are you saying the pubs need something extra? Exactly. I'm 66 years of age. I don't get COVID payment. I can count 20 publicans at the present time that are over 66 years of age, that have worked over 50 years in the pub trade. And they'll be told, well, you've got the pension, so be it. And that's it. It's terrible. It's disgusting. We have worked, paid taxes, paid VAT, paid rates, all down through the years. Listening to the locals of Barnathichi in Ballygar, a town of around 300 people, it's clear the role of the pub in rural Ireland is as much about community as anything else. Parik O'Connor, I've been coming here for 60 years, was bringing my dad here and coming myself then. I wouldn't give a sugar for all the drink in the country. So, you know, it's just the company and the... You know, the atmosphere, when you come in, everyone talks to you and knows you and there's a bit of gossip you're hearing. And if you have a couple of drinks and pat her on your home, come out for you again in the morning <laughs> to let your car and you can't ask for anything better than that. Sean Kilgariff, because I've been coming here 40 years or more. You come down to this local pub here and not only do you know who's here, but you know where they're sitting. It's not the drink. It's just, it's just go down and, and, and have a bit of fun with the lads. Because it's unique. It's a family type thing. They try to reciprocate it all over the world and they can't. The only place you'll see an Irish pub properly is here in Ireland. And especially in rural Ireland. That's what the Irish pub is all about. Ballygar publican Pat Gilmore ending that report from Angus Cox. We've had the phased roadmap to reopening. Well, next up is a medium-term plan the government says to take the country through the next six or nine months of living with coronavirus. Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly is on the line. Minister, work begins next week on this plan. What's the idea? Uh, Good morning, Louise. Well, actually, there's been an awful lot of work done on the plan already. So Neffet have spent a considerable amount of time looking at how we move from what has been I think a very successful uh, piece of work to date, but which has been quite responsive in its nature, obviously, as uh, as we learn more and more about this virus, to trying to put something uh, longer term in place. And Neffet's proposal essentially is a colour-coded system, which we would all recognise and be quite familiar with from, from weather warnings. And the idea is that we have uh, a yellow uh, level, which is which is where we would be at now in most of the country, but outside of the three countries, obviously, where there's restrictions in place. There'd be an orange level, which would be some version of what Leash, Kildare and Offaly have in place right now. A red level, which would be across the whole country and which we have all become very accustomed to, which is very much what the people of Auckland are dealing with at the moment. And then blue, <clears throat> blue is the colour of vaccines, 
in in the medical world and the idea of blue is that we wouldn't be fully clear of this obviously until we have a vaccine uh, until we and until we can get back to our lives there, there was some thinking at the start uh, around green that we would have now as green but I, I think we all saw that there was some genuine confusion as Ireland's so-called green list you know, whereas in fact, when you looked at those countries and you look at our own country, you'd say, well, we're not really green, obviously. You know, we're having to take an awful lot of measures ourselves. We're having to follow all the basic guidelines. The business community are still having to put up with an awful lot and so forth. So the idea is a color-coded system where we all in the country can see how we're doing, how the country's doing, how regions are doing, how our local areas are doing, and we can we can therefore uh, plan ahead a bit more. Okay. Minister, though, what, what's the difference? between colours and, and phases? It's just a different name. Uh, no, it's not. So the, so the phases, Louise, uh, is an idea where you're you're moving through a time period. So as we all saw, when the, the original roadmap came in, there was a timeline attached to it to say, look, this, th- these, are the, these are the conditions we'll deal with now. The plan is that in three weeks or in six weeks, we'll move out of that. As we saw, then Cabinet had to make decisions to pause on moving to phase four. And then very unfortunately, we had to pause again on things like the reopening of the pubs because of a research of the disease in the community. This is different to that. This basically says uh, no matter what day of the week it is, no matter what week it is, where are we at now? So are we at status yellow, which is what most of the country is at now? Or have things got to a point where the public health doctors have said, no, we, we need to move to orange either across the country or, or in different regions? So really, the, the phases was about providing a timescale. And the current proposal from the public health doctors is this would be very much a a colour-coded warning system to say, where are we at on any given day? Okay, so it sounds like a more like a nuanced, specific responses. But does that suggest that what's happening in Lee Shoffley in Kildare at the moment is too blunt an instrument? I, I don't think so. I, I really believe that the measures that the public health doctors recommended for Kildare, Leash and Offaly are, are very nuanced. You know, and, Would you and see yourself asked, introducing that, that, that type of measures again? It's entirely possible. Yeah, I, I think what Leash, Kildare and Offaly have shown is just how quickly this virus can spread uh, and the need for us to be able to react to it quickly. So Leash, Kildare and Offaly if we hadn't reacted as quickly as we had, what the public health doctors would say is uh, we wouldn't have seen the scale of this. It would have seeped into the community very quickly. Inevitably, it would have got into the nursing homes. It would have spread around the country. And actually, we could have been right back to the start again, having to impose really strict measures across the entire country. The idea is that by having the testing and tracing systems in place and by having a, a system like Neffet is proposing, we can move as quickly as possibly uh, as possible and as locally as possible to try and contain the virus when we do see outbreaks. Okay, well, so speed is of is of the essence then. We heard this week meat processors and a crash where there was an outbreak saying they had delays in getting their test results. Do we have the test capacity? We do have the test capacity, but we are working closely uh, with the teams who are doing the testing to uh, to make it quicker and quicker all of the time. So, well, what's the delays? Uh, well, first of all, the, the turnaround times are pretty good, right? So the median turnaround time from a referral to somebody getting the test, getting their result, 
all of their close contacts being contacted and everybody being isolated as appropriate. The median time right now is 3.1 days, which, which is pretty good. However, we're looking very closely at what happened in the three counties. And while the testing and tracing system has been excellent, I think it's fair to say, um, there have been one or two issues which, which have been identified. So, for example, um, thanks to the great work of everyone in the country, we were down to about 20 positive tests a day. As a result of that, uh, the operation was scaled back in terms of the number of people who you need. And these are clinical calls, remember, so you're pulling people off clinical work to do these. Um, the number of people we had reduced. What we then saw was over a really short period of time, instead of it being 140 calls in a week, it was 140 calls in a day. And while the tests were still being processed and the negative test results were being brought back, the phone calls, which are clinical calls for the positive tests, they weren't happening as quickly as well, sorry, some of them were, but some of them weren't happening as quickly uh, as we would all like them to. So one of the things, for example, that was discussed yesterday at the Cabinet Subcommittee was having um, more people in place, including accepting uh, that just like your ambulance service or just like your, your, your fire service, um, when, these are, when these people are needed, by God, are they, are they needed very quickly? But, but at, by the same token, then there will be times uh, when, there, when, when you know, the work isn't there, but you have to, you have to maintain the the capacity of service to respond quickly. So when the, when, when the challenge was there, we didn't have people ready to make the calls? Well, when the challenge was there, the teams got onto the ground very quickly. The, the testing was done. Um, 491 positive test results came back in a very short period of time. The negative test results did get out. The one area where um, we had scaled back the operation and we didn't have the people uh, for two or three days was in the clinical phone calls to those who were positive. And, and that's something we are going to remedy. Okay. Yesterday, IBEC told us uh, on the programme that while some of the food processing workers do get sick pay, Others will have to reply, rely on the, the PUP payment or if they have to isolate or if, if they have COVID. Are you happy the state will be paying the workers of meat plants? I would be very happy that the state will be paying the, the PUP and any COVID-related sick payment. Uh, I, I, I absolutely will because what we have to have is a situation where every worker, if they feel symptomatic, they can raise their hand to their employer or to a family member, but most importantly to the GP, get onto the GP and say, I have one of the symptoms. The GP will refer them, uh, will refer them for a test. The most important thing is that no one in our country feels, I can't do that because, well, if I'm out of work for two weeks, I won't be able to pay the bills. I won't be able to buy food for my children. So what I'm going to do is, you know, I'll take paracetamol or I'll try and suppress it. And I will hope that it, you know, that it isn't COVID, that it's something else. We, we absolutely can't have that uh, system. One of the, the facets of this, Louise, that the public health doctors have, have impressed upon me is how, just how quickly it can spread. Um, you have a lot of asymptomatic carriers. So one of the things we found from the, the, the clusters and the meat plants is an awful lot of people who are asymptomatic. One person can go to work um, in good faith, they can be asymptomatic, uh, they can be in work all day. By the time they leave uh, their place of work, you might have 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 people infected. Sure. So we must have a situation where if anybody feels symptomatic, they can go straight to their GP without any fear of um, not being able to pay the bills. There is some concern, though, over potential GDPR issues around widespread testing. Is legislation required to, to address some of those concerns? 
Not to the best of my knowledge. Uh, I, I haven't heard that. It's if, if that is the case, it's cer- certainly something we can look at very closely. Is there a problem are, in terms d- of, you know, if, if I've been diagnosed with COVID, uh, my employer's entitlement to know that? No, no, I, I don't believe there is a. I don't believe there is a problem. If there is, we can we can iron it out. But certainly, in the first instance, the person themselves need to be needs needs to be told. Um, there may be an issue around ringing an employer and saying, "By the way, you know, RTE, hey, Louise has tested positive." There there may be issues there, but certainly at a minimum, uh, we will want employers to know that there are outbreaks in their facilities because obviously we'll want them to take action straight away. So uh, if there are issues around identifying an individual, there are certainly things we can we can iron out. But in the first instance, the person needs to know because the person needs to isolate themselves and we need to immediately start the contact tracing with them and hopefully if they have the app, that will help. Uh, and in the second instance, an employer will need to know that there is uh, a case or cases in their workplace so they can act straight away. Okay. The timeline now that we're looking at, though, is potentially nine months living with coronavirus. People are worried, they're stressed, they're exhausted. Are you concerned about whether you can bring people with you on the next phase of this pandemic? Well, I'm not because really the question is, am I concerned about the resilience and determination and strength of the Irish people? And and I most certainly am not concerned about any of those things. The response to date has been nothing short of spectacular and it has come at a heartbreaking cost in terms of loss of life, loss of health, uh, loss of livelihoods. Um, and we remain very, very strong. And and these are not just warm words from a politician, Louise. If you look at the data, it tells us that. What it shows is that in spite of these very big clusters, which 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 we're moving on quickly, that the level of community transmission, that's the, that's the transmission whereby we don't know where it comes from, and it's the bit that really worries the public health doctors. The level of community transmission in Ireland is very low, and there's only one reason it can be low, and that's because the vast, 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 vast majority of people in this country are following the guidelines set down by the public health doctors. Now, the reality is uh, we could be looking at this for nine months. We could be looking at it for two years. We, we don't know. Um, it really depends on when a vaccine uh, comes through. I, I think the role that government has to play is, it, is we have to make sure that we are fully open and transparent, that people have all of the information that they can get, that people understand that in areas like Leash Kildare and Offaly, that when these restrictions are being put in place, they're being put in place as quickly as possible okay. uh, and in, in as minimalist w- a way as possible and in as transparent transparent way as possible to do one thing, to save lives uh, and to save public health, to protect the nursing homes, to protect vulnerable people in the community. And by doing all of that to protect the local local economies, even though it does mean, unfortunately, uh, it doesn't it's it's not always pleasant in the very short term. Okay, Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, thank you for joining us this morning. We're going to talk now about the decision by Joe Biden in the United States to name Kamala Harris as his running mate, the first black woman and South Asian American in the role. Once a rival for the top job, the California senator of Indian Jamaican heritage had long been considered the front runner for the number two slot of vice president. We're going to discuss this now with Larry Donnelly, NUI Galway Law lecturer and political commentator. And we're also joined by RTE's Jackie Fox, who is co-host and producer producer of RTE's States of Mind podcast about the US presidential election campaign. You're both welcome. Larry, first of all, was Kamala Harris always going to be the choice? 
yes, in my view, I strongly believe she would always be the choice, and I, I actually would have been stunned if she wasn't. Uh, I think the reality is she's telegenic, she's charismatic, uh, she's probably best situated to drive African-American turnout, which is going to be extremely important uh, in November, and, and also two X factors, I think, that were present. Uh, she's a known commodity, she's a safe pair of hands, the American people know her, uh, and what's more, she was close to Joe Biden's son, uh, and I think anyone who knows Joe Biden would say he prizes loyalty uh, above all else and prizes the opinion of his family members. Uh, I think that intangible factor uh, also probably swung things her way. Jackie, will you tell us a little bit more about her? Who is Kamala Harris? Yeah, I think a lot of people will be wondering who she is. I mean, her own parents were immigrants to the United States. Her father was from Jamaica, her mother from India, and their lives and her own have in some ways embodied that whole American dream. And she was born in Oakland in California, and she earned her undergraduate degree at the historically black Howard University in Washington. She's had a lot of firsts. She was the first black attorney general of California. She was the first woman to hold the post and she was the first woman of South Asian heritage to be elected to the US Senate in November 2016 and as a senator she has employed very tough questioning skills um, honed as her time as a prosecutor notably in particular during the Senate confirmation hearing of Supreme Court Justice nominee Brett Kavanaugh and there's a great quote of her going around online at the moment of what her mother used to say to her is that you may be the first to do many things but make sure you're not the last. Larry how will she help uh, Joe Biden win the White House? Will she help him win it? I, I believe so. Again, uh, African Americans across the United States, I think she's the one who's best situated uh, to move them. Uh, when it comes to the campaign trail, and I, I've said this before, uh, Joe Biden is going to be have to lean on her an awful lot. Uh, Kamala Harris is definitely up for the 24-7 rigors uh, of campaigning. She's there, she's capable, uh, I, whereas Joe Biden, there are serious concerns about whether uh, he will be able to do that. Uh, the other thing I think that she'll help with is uh, with the, the vital constituency of suburban white women. Uh, I also think that they will warm to her story, as Jackie alluded to, uh, and warm to her personally. Uh, and I actually think in that regard, her background in law enforcement, which has been criticized by some on the left, will reassure that block of voters, the key people that Biden needs to get on side, the people in the middle. Her background in law enforcement, I think, will be a positive, not, not a negative, because for those voters, defunding the police is not a very popular idea. Uh, and I think that she can simultaneously assuage those voters while pointing out to people of color and to people on the left that she was involved in some reform uh, while she was in law enforcement. So in every respect, she makes sense and she ticks all the boxes. She was critical, Jackie, of Joe Biden during the early debates in the U.S. in the Democratic primary campaign of which she was a, a part. She was the lead candidate uh, for a while back then. Um, will she and Biden be able to put their own differences aside? They will have to. Yeah, I mean, you know, just even recent weeks and months, we've seen Black Lives Matter protests across the U.S., 
since the killing of George Floyd, which has been highlighting racial injustice in the United States, but always for Kamala Harris, her heritage, her race, her identity. It's been a such important fact to her for her. And before these protests even happened, she launched her campaign for the Democratic presidential nomination on March. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday in January 2019 and it was attended by around 20,000 people in Oakland. We obviously know now that she would eventually drop out of the race as you said there uh, Audrey but a major highlight for her during that campaign was when she did she clashed with Joe Biden during the first Democratic debate um, chiding the former senator over his opposition to the 1970s busing programs that forced integration of segregated schools that provided her with a breakout moment and a bump in the polls but it was also short-lived and when she had that clash with Joe Biden on the debate stage um, apparently his wife Jill was not very impressed with the senator at all but it just shows that you know politics is impersonal and what happens on the debate stage can be left there. Well, let, let's hear that clash right now, uh, Jackie. This is the moment when Senator Kamala Harris uh, clashed with Joe Biden over that issue of busing. Vice President Biden, do you agree today, do you agree today that you were wrong to oppose busing in America? Then? No. Do you agree? I did not oppose busing in America. What I opposed is busing ordered by the Department of Education. That's what I oppose. Well, I there did was not a oppose. failure of, of states to, to integrate no, public schools in America. I was part of the second class to integrate Berkeley, California public schools almost two decades after Brown v. Board of Education. Because your city council made that decision. It was so a local decision. So that's where the federal government must step the, in. The that's why we have the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. That's why we need to pass the Equality Act. That's why we need to pass the ERA, because that's there are moments in history where states fail to preserve the civil rights of I all people. Supported. Arguing then, presenting a united front today, the, the presidential nominee and his vice presidential candidate there. Um, Larry, one of the roles, I suppose, of the vice president is to get down and dirty with the opposition. And certainly Kamala Harris is assertive and tough in debates. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely the case. And just to, to jump back one second, uh, the reality is that attack was politics. And I think anybody who saw Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush in the primary campaign in 1980 would have been astonished to see them present such a united front for eight years. So that can be uh, that can certainly be overcome. But certainly Kamala Harris is a formidable opponent. She's a formidable debater. Uh, but word is that she's also well-liked on Capitol Hill, that there are a lot of Republicans who do have respect for her. She is going to have to get down and dirty, as you say, to accomplish the agenda. She is going to be an activist vice president because... Uh, of the the, the presumptive nominee's uh, age and related concerns about his capacity, she's ready to step in and do the job, and she has the energy and the vigor. Uh, and that's why, again, uh, I would have been surprised if Biden chose anybody but her. And Jackie, she will have to be ready for whatever Donald Trump throws at her. Absolutely. I mean, Kamala Harris, she's young, she's 55, she's a seasoned politician. And that's important, too, because we did have one of the most diverse, diverse democratic races in history. We had young, old, black, 
white, straight, gay, all vying for that nomination. But yet it seems the Democratic Party wants that seasoned politician uh, in the form of Joe Biden, who was a six term senator and former vice president, who they think can steady the shift after an unpredictable president in an uncertain year. And with the 77 year old Mr. Biden expected to serve only one term if he is elected as president Kamala Harris will be favored to win the Democratic presidential nomination in four years from now and I know it's looking way into to the future but that could give her a shot at a more history making as the first female president of the United States. Well to put it bluntly Larry today's Democratic Party does not look like Joe Biden as uh, Jackie alluded to there and this is as important for the future of the Democratic Party as it is for his campaign presumably. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of people, both in the United States and elsewhere, are still kind of reeling at the fact that the two nominees uh, are white men in their 70s. Uh, so I think that the choice, uh, again, was important on that front. The signal it sent uh, to people of color in the United States that they are going to be represented uh, in the very highest level of power. And this goes back to her uh, very powerful backstory. Uh, I think there's also some tight wire walking here as well, because uh, while she is a person of color, uh, Harris has been part of the establishment. She has worked in law enforcement. All of those things, speaking ruthlessly politically, uh, will not alienate uh, those white voters, I suppose, uh, in the middle, who are ultimately will decide this election, just like all presidential elections. So she'll do that as well as, I think, uh, energizing and invigorating people of color across the United States. But Larry, is she a bit of a, a flip-flopper, as so many are, I suppose, because during the, the campaign, her own campaign, she moved from being a moderate to being a left, and now she's come back again. Uh, will people wonder what her core, core values are? That, that's a valid question, but I think that the key point is none of the choices were perfect. And if you look at her positions, and she has shifted on things like Medicare for All, for instance, uh, it's arguably easier for Biden to work with her because she has been malleable to an extent than if, say, for instance, she had chosen somebody like Elizabeth Warren, with whom Biden has really strong and sincere uh, policy differences. The fact that Harris has moved around a little bit makes it harder for Republicans to paint uh, any real big disagreements between the two. So rather than that being a weakness to some extent, uh, it could be portrayed as a strength that she is willing to compromise, that she does move a little bit. Uh, I think that ultimately might work to her advantage rather than to her disadvantage. And also, again, uh, the key here is those voters in the middle. Uh, Democrats desperately do not want to alienate them. Just briefly, Jackie, will this ignite the campaign? Absolutely. I think, you know, in a world of COVID-19, we have uh, the conventions over the next two weeks, the Democratic Convention and the Republic Convent Republican Convention, which look incredibly different um, compared to years gone by. There'll be no glitz. There'll be no glamour. Uh, most of it will be done over Zoom. Um, so this ignites a bit of drama into it. We've already seen Donald Trump calling Kamala Harris extraordinarily nasty. Um, but as we know, even from that clip of her with Joe Biden, she has already shown on the debate stage that she is well able to tackle her opponents and all eyes will be on her when she debates Vice President Mike Pence in October. Great to have you both on the programme this morning. Jackie Fox of RT's Foreign Desk and co-presenter of RT's States of Mind podcast and law lecturer at NUI Galway and political commentator Larry Donnelly. 
Israel and the United Arab Emirates have reached a deal to normalise relations, the first Gulf state to reach such an agreement. Israel has agreed to suspend a plan to annex parts of the occupied West Bank. They've cooperated unofficially for some time based on their opposition to Iran, their regional influence and affiliation to the United States. The deal was announced by the US President Donald Trump who helped broker it. A spokesman for President for Palestinian President rather Mahmoud Abbas said the deal amounted to treason. Gideon Levy is Israeli journalist, author and columnist with Haaretz newspaper. Uh, Gideon Levy, good morning. Thanks for taking our call. It's my pleasure. Good morning. Um, the practical implications of this agreement, what are they? Uh, they are very limited because there were relations between the United Arab Emirates and Israel, but they were under the table and now they will be more official. I don't want to underestimate, it is an achievement, I mean, Israelis will be able to travel to Dubai and, uh, and uh, citizens of the Arab Emirates will be able to visit Al-Aqsa Mosque, those are nice things, but it's not a strategic change in the Middle East. The United Arab Emirates is making much of Israel's suspension of annexing some of the West Bank, saying that it keeps alive a two-state solution. Are they right? They are right in the way that they uh, succeeded to stop the annexation and to stop uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and Donald Trump. The question is, for how long? And by this, it doesn't mean that the two-state solution is still... Uh, um, available is still a real option because as we know with 700,000 settlers, Jewish settlers in the occupied territories talking about the two-state solution become more like a wishful thinking than a real political reality. Yes, because didn't the US sign off on this annexation as part of their recent peace plan, the one that was rejected by the Palestinians? Yeah, uh, the, the United States, uh, in any case, everything will be very relevant if Donald Trump will be re-elected, then annexation will be on the table and maybe even implemented. If Donald Trump will not be re-elected, we can all forget about the annexation in any case. The United Arab Emirates made clear, and they weren't alone in Gulf states, that uh, this annexation would be uh, essentially a line of the sand, a step too far, and yet from all indications, including uh, interviews given by Israel's ambassador to the United Nations, this is merely a suspension of the annexation. It's going to go ahead at some stage. I'm not sure. As I said, it all depends on, on the elections in the United States. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, Netanyahu had a, a serious intention to go for it in any case. It is more games of, of words and formulas because on the ground the territories are annexated now for 52 years with those hundreds of thousands of, set of settlers living there and this is the real reality which no declaration can right now change yes uh, annexation might come back to our lives uh, after the elections in the united states but uh, the real question is what is happening on the ground and on the ground, Israel annexated the West Bank. Do you expect more Gulf states to follow what the UAE have done? Bahrain, for example, and maybe more? Yeah, there are talkings about uh, Bahrain is the first candidate, and then uh, maybe uh, Oman and others. Uh, it's all about, we forgot uh, the big elephant in the room. The big elephant in the room is obviously Iran. 
and, and this uh, um, sharing of interest between Israel and those Gulf countries is quite long now. The only question is if it will be official or not. And by the end of the day, we all have to remember the victim of all this. The victim are the Palestinians who are again thrown to the side of the road, totally forgotten, and more and more lonely. And this, uh, and they are not going to anywhere. So those of us who celebrate another peace in the Middle East must remember that the core issue, the main problem, is still far from being solved. And yet this agreement would suggest that for states like the UAE, that their opposition to Iran and their continued affiliation with the United States is now trumping their, their, their allegiance with Palestinians. Yeah, and the Palestinians feel betrayed, and rightly so. Any Arab state which mobilizes its relations with Israel without any kind of progress uh, toward the ending of the occupation is betraying the Palestinian cause and is uh, making the Palestinians more helpless. I think they are now in a stage that they've never been before. Lonely, helpless, divided, and bleeding aside uh, the road. Gideon Levy, thank you very much for speaking to us this morning. That's Gideon Levy who works with the Haaretz newspaper uh, in Israel. We'll be knocking on your door and we'll make sure that you pay. That was the warning issued yesterday by Deputy Garda Commissioner John Toomey to those involved in the killing of Garda Adrian Donoghue in County Louth seven years ago. His comments followed the conviction of 29-year-old Aaron Brady for the capital murder of Detective Donoghue, shot dead during a raid on the Lordship Credit Union in January 2013. The verdict came at the conclusion of a 26-week trial and followed one of the biggest murder investigations in the history of the state. Adrian Donoghue was 41 years old and based at Dundalk Garda Station. Yesterday after the verdict, his wife Caroline and his brother Colm thanked his colleagues, the jury and the judge. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to most sincerely thank the jury for sticking with this trial for so long and for my Garda colleagues and for the prosecution team on behalf of Amy Nile and myself. Thank you very much. I'd like to express our immense gratitude to Adrian's colleagues in Dundalk. We investigated this for a 20 degree for the loss of a colleague. It's a huge credit to each and every person involved in the investigation that we stand here today. We'd be remiss of us not to acknowledge and thank the extraordinary help given to the investigation by law enforcement agencies around the world. Aaron Brady was not alone in Lordship on the 25th of January 2013. The quest for justice for Adrian will continue and we appeal to anyone, near or far, who has any information and may assist in this investigation come forward and do the right thing. As has been said, this trial Adrian was a good man and it's the very least he deserves is that justice be served. Adrian Donoghue's wife Caroline and his brother Colm speaking outside the court there. The conviction of Brady, though, does not conclude the investigation into Garda Donoghue's killing. Gardaí have warned others involved in the murder and the robbery that they will be tracked down. I have a clear message that the investigation continues, uh, there are other people involved in this horrific crime and you will be brought to justice and we will make every effort and leave no stone unturned. We will be knocking on your door and we will make sure that you pay for this horrendous act. They murdered Adrian, they left the scene, they went into Northern Ireland and then they thought that borders would save them, but borders didn't save them. The, the long arm of the law extended into the United States of America and ensured that Aaron Brady received justice uh, here today.
Chief Superintendent Christy Mangan and Deputy Garda Commissioner John Toomey speaking at that news briefing following the verdict yesterday. We can talk now to Conor Lally, Irish Times Security and Crime Editor. Good morning, Conor, and thanks for talking to us. Good morning, Brian. And we'll talk about the continuing investigation in just a moment, but first of all, the conviction of Brady. It was a case built on substantial amounts of uh, circumstantial evidence. Brady's own admission to the killing in conversations uh, a number of occasions in the United States and also involved a high level of cooperation between Gardaí, the PSNI and crucially investigators in America. It did, Brian. As you said in the uh, clip there earlier, I mean, the trial went on for 26 weeks, which is obviously a very, very long time. Um, the trial also proceeded seven years after Detective Guard Adrian Dunhill was, sh- was uh, shot dead, which is also, you know, quite a long time between um, a crime like that and, and a trial taking place. But, but probably the most unusual feature of this trial is the fact that um, Aaron Brady, when he lived in the US, particularly when he was out drinking and he was quite drunk, he would not only tell people that he knew he uh, he was a he was a killer, but he'd actually seek out people um, and tell them. In one particular incident, um, a barman at an Irish pub that he drank at, he was actually flagged down in his car by Aaron Brady. And when one of the Irish American newspapers um, out there actually wrote a story to say that a suspect for the Adrian Donahue killing was in the U.S., um, Aaron Brady actually flagged down the barman in his car and showed him a copy of the newspaper. So he seemed to kind of, you know, wear this as a, um, almost as a badge of pride. Um, he would then tell people when he became, you know, sorrowful when he was drinking or when he was trying to, you know, threaten people that he got into rows with. And he also told, um, you know, the girlfriend of friends of his and so on. So literally he told quite a large group of people um, that he'd killed a guard back in Ireland. And that was really key evidence um, during the course of the trial. Um In the event, event, I think there was two witnesses who actually gave evidence of the trial, but statements it's reported were taken from others. Uh, They didn't uh, uh, come forward to give evidence, and, and there is an investigation separately going on into alleged intimidation. Is that right? There is an investigation into that. There were five other witnesses um, who gave statements um, to either the US police or to the Gardaí um, about, you know, this kind of carry-on from Aaron Brady, about him telling them that he had uh, killed a guard back in Ireland. But during the trial, one curious incident happened. Um, a recording of one of those people um, giving a statement to the Gardaí appeared on social media, and there were also threats to that person that went along with that clip on social media. And that particular witness didn't actually give evidence at the trial. And as I say, there were, there were at least four other people um, who were in the same boat, who, you know, had given statements to the guards, but then wouldn't step up during the trial. Mm-hmm. So Gardy believed that there was quite a significant, um, you know, campaign to try and threaten these people and to try and force them not to give evidence at the trial, mm-hmm. which appeared to work um, apart from two witnesses. Yeah. Um, so there is a separate inquiry going on into that, yeah. Brian, yes. And as I said, there is there was also a lot of circumstantial evidence uh, which was brought forward to the trial, and you and others are writing about that in, in, in the papers and elsewhere today. But let me just, uh, before we go on to the continue investigation a word about the fact that this is a capital murder conviction what does that mean for brady's sentencing it essentially means um capital murder essentially means the killing of a garden member on duty when you knew you were going to kill the person and you also knew they were a garden member and the big difference is brian is that it um it it results in a jail term of 40 years 
Um, so Aaron Brady will do at least 30 years in jail. There was a case taken in recent years by people who previously killed um, a, a guard back in the 1980s and they basically took a court and they claimed they were entitled to 10% remission um, the way any other prisoner in Ireland was and they actually won that case. So a 40-year capital term um, essentially equates into 30 years in jail. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be a long period of time. He won't be out of jail until, until he's at least... Uh, 60 years old. Yeah. Well, now, as we've been saying, the investigation has not concluded with his conviction. Gardy have a number of other suspects. There were a number of others involved in the in the raid back in January uh, 2013. What's known about the, the, the point, the stage at which that continuing investigation has reached? Yeah, as you say, Brian, um, Aaron Brady was part of a five-man South Armagh gang that were, that were involved in the robbery on the evening. They were basically, uh, one of them was in the car, in the car park of the Lordship Credit Union when Adrian Donahoe um, arrived to give a cash escort to cash from the, to uh, cash and staff from the credit union um, and then four of them were hiding be- behind the wall and they ran from behind that wall towards Adrian Donahue all of these men as I say are from South Armagh they would have been involved in you know things like oil laundering um, you know robbing uh, plant machinery things like JCBs and that kind of stuff from construction sites um, they would have also been involved in similar armed robberies before they carried out the attack on Lordship C- uh, Credit Union and in the theft of ATMs now two of those men are abroad at the moment that they have all actually spent time abroad since the killing back in january 2013 two of the men are in the u.s at the at the moment and two of them are here in ireland and particularly in relation to one of the men the guardy field they've got very strong evidence they've got you know a cctv image of his car going up and down very close to the crime scene on the day um, they've got strong physical evidence that really ties him to Aaron Brady uh, pretty much tr- throughout the day on the day that Adrian Donahoe was shot. Um, and they've got other things like, you know, the type of evidence that we heard against Aaron Brady during the trial, things like their telephones being turned off, you know, precisely for the period of the crime and that kind of thing. So as we saw in the Aaron Brady trial, the case was really constructed over, you know, with painstaking evidence, lots of small detail to do with, you know, witness testimony, phone records, all of that kind of thing. Gardy believe they can build a similar case against mm-hmm. at least one other person involved in the in the crime and probably others as, as well. So having spoken to senior officers uh, yesterday, they're really as determined now as they ever were mm-hmm. uh, to catch these people. And in fact, having secured that conviction against Aaron Brady, um, you know, they're very much spurred along by that. And they also feel that there was a group of up to 20 people that may have helped these five men after they killed Detective Garda Adrian Donahoe. So, you know, they're aiming to catch as many of those people as they can. All right. Conor Lally, Irish Times Security and Crime Editor. Thank you very much indeed. Five new murals situated around the town of Dundalk in County Louth, painted by local, national and international artists last week, are proving to be a great success. They're part of a local project, the Seek Arts Festival, which was set up last year to rejuvenate the town centre and promote visual arts. Locals, as well as tourists visiting the area, have been treated to guided tours, where they can view and learn more about the background to these nine colourful art forms. Our reporter, Elise Sheehy, spoke to some of those involved in the project. We're just about to set off on our lunchtime tour, so just to remind everybody to uh, keep a safe distance, we're going to start off uh, 
Martin McGilligot, the town centre commercial manager with Dundalk Business Improvement District Scheme, leading a small group of people around the town to view the nine murals which have been painted on walls at various locations as part of the Sikh Contemporary Urban Arts Festival. The project was established in 2019 to refocus Dundalk as an area of culture and creativity. Four murals were completed last year and just last week, artists from Ireland, France and Spain who were all residing here added another five murals to the popular collection. The people featured in the paintings all have a special connection with Dundalk. Paul Kavanagh, a famous photographer born in 1929, he was responsible for recording a lot of the Troubles. Tom Sailor Sharkey, a heavyweight boxer, born in Hill Street, ran away from home at the age of 12 and somehow made it into the USS Navy and became a, a bare-knuckle heavyweight boxer and he's still renowned till this day as uh, possibly one of the, the biggest punchers in the world. <laughs> you know. And then we have Bridget of Fahert. We have then a piece about Dorothy McCardle, a journalist, a playwright. She was friends with Eamon de Valera and she wrote the book The Irish Republic. Uh, so everything we do, as you can see, is based on our own backstory. So this is Paul Kavanagh, a piece by Omen. Paul was a journalist. Barry Finnegan, also known as Omen is a local mural painter and graffiti artist. This year he was tasked with bringing the image of renowned Dundalk photographer Paul Kavanagh to life, something he describes as an honour. We're standing here at quite a large gable end on Bachelor's Walk in Dundalk. It's a depiction and portrait of Paul Kavanagh and an inclusion of one of his uh, quite iconic photographs that he took of uh, Chipperfield Circus arriving into Dundalk back in the late 50s, early 60s. The uh, elephants arrived to town in the train and they walked the whole length of Dundalk. So in the background I have... um, blue tones and stuff which kind of represents a sort of negative process of photography then he's uh, painted in a black and white photography with a little touch of color for his tie because i believe he used to wear like a like a baby pink tie and colored socks and then at the front i have the elephants painted in a sepia tone so there's three elements of photography i've included as a homage to paul to do it in my hometown it's a real honor like you know to be able to kind of leave something like this as a legacy to him and to the town and for the festival it's it's amazing The creation of a free outdoor gallery in Dundalk could not come at a better time. The COVID-19 pandemic has had a devastating impact on the arts, resulting in the closure of theatres, music venues and galleries. These art forms play a very significant part in the town centre recovery, but they also give people from Dundalk and further afield the opportunity to explore the story behind the artwork and connect with the local heritage. I think it's a very good walk, to be quite honest with you. Like I mean, there's a great opening to the town, a great sight to see when you're coming in. They're doing great work. It's great to see all the extra colour around the town. It really brings the town to life. Uh, it brightens up some of the, the darker areas of the town that you'd usually just walk past and the scale of the murals and the colours is just wonderful. And the way it relates back to the history of Dundalk, it's a real focal point and something that Dundalk can be proud of. They brighten up the town, this end of the town was neglected for a long time. But it's nice to see them now. And it's bringing more people out onto the streets like you know. And that report from Dundalk from Elish Sheehy.
You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.